We begun a, a brief series on the book of Second Peter, looking at the call for Christians to endure in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false teaching. We are called to persevere and to endure. And we have looked in the past weeks at what it is we need to know in order to do that and how we can have assurance that such things will take place. And as we continue in the words of Second Peter, we will see the word of salvation that God has given to us. This morning I'll be reading Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So when children are very young, they have a question that they ask a lot. What that? What's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? They're learning. It's kind of the nominative phase where we're learning how to ascribe names to things. But then quickly move into the why phase, right? Why? Why is it like that? Why is the sky blue? Why is that a horse? Why does the kitty go meow? Why this? Why that? But then they reach this beautiful age where the question is, who said? You can't do that. Who says? Hey, that's dangerous. Who says? That's inappropriate. Well, who says? And this is because teenagers are natural. They're by their very nature, they're epistemologists. Not a great career choice, but it's really what we are. Epistemology is that big word for the, the branch of philosophy that's asking, how do we know what we know? What is the authority to our beliefs and our knowledge and understanding. And there's whole categories uh, of philosophy that, that, that base themselves off of our epistemology. What do we trust? Do we trust our senses? That's a p- empiricism. Where what we, can, what we can study and verify with, with scientific method and what we can see and touch and taste and hear, that's what we trust. That's how we know is true. Or is it our reason? I think, therefore I am. I have to start with what my mind knows is true, and I can't trust the way the world appears. It might just be an illusion. I might be a brain in a vat. I don't know, but my reason is reliable. That's how I know what's true. Or do we trust tradition? This is the way it's been. This is what's been passed down to us. This is how our culture is. This is what is true. Well, the the gospel makes the bold claim, the bold claim that Scripture... The Bible is the Word of God, and it's the beginning point 
of our understanding of truth and goodness and beauty. In fact, the Bible is our only reliable source of knowledge leading to salvation. Peter is writing to a people who are being challenged in their faith, misled by false teachers who are questioning everything that the first followers of Jesus ever told them. Just as the church encounters this everywhere it goes, in every Christian community, in every corner of the world where the gospel seeks to make Christ known, there is inevitably always a response of, yeah, who says? On what authority? And Peter points us again to the Word of God as our authority, calling us to see God's Word as not just a suggestion, not just one opinion, not even just a book of inspiration, but it is the very Word of your salvation. And so there's four things I want us to see about Scripture in what Peter says about it in these verses. The first is that Scripture calls us to action. Verse 12 Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. These qualities, as we'll see in a moment, referring back to the things that we looked at last week. Uh, Peter sees that his end is coming. He says, look, the Lord has has revealed to me, I don't have much longer here. And as history bears it out, a, a few months or a year or so after the writing of this, Peter was executed by the Roman Empire under under Emperor Nero. And he's he's. He's asking and thinking about who's going to feed the flock, who's going to to give God's word to the people once the the first generation of Christian leaders are gone. The answer is the same one who always fed God's people. It's Jesus himself through his word. Now, Peter knows that these words aren't necessarily new. In verse 12, he says, you know them, you're established in the truth that you have. You should not come here expecting novelty. You're not gathered here to hear something new. And I'm not trying to present something new to you. I'm trying to remind you. You're gathered here to remember the truth that you're established in, the gospel that you've already heard. Now, through what is preached and and sung and prayed, you might hear it in a new way. You might hear it with a new perspective. You might hear a new way to apply it. But the gospel is not going to change. You've heard this before. Peter, like all pastors, however, knows that Most people don't remember most of the things they hear in a sermon. And Randy and I will talk about this sometimes. We'll mention something we want to say in a sermon, and I'll say, yeah, but I just just said that like two weeks ago. And then we look at each other and laugh because we know that nobody remembers what I said two weeks ago. And that's, that's okay. I don't expect that you're hanging on my every word. But remembering is not just recalling facts. And that's what Peter's starting to get at here. Remembering is acting on that information. When he says he wants them to remember these things, he's not just saying, I want you to keep it in mind. He wants you to do something about it. I I know what fast food does to my body. And yet I still go through the drive-thru. I know that for the past five years, once I reached a certain age, I've not been able to eat pepperoni pizza without suffering consequences. But you want to know what I had for dinner last night? I remember, but I don't act on that knowledge always. Remembering isn't just recalling, it's acting. And so the Bible is to us not just information, it's instruction. It teaches us how to live. And so Peter says in verse 15, I'm going to make every effort, in writing down Scripture, I'm going to make every effort so that after my departure, his death, you may be able to at any time recall these things. 
So these things points back to what we've looked at the past two weeks, the beginning of the chapter, the, the knowledge of God leading to salvation, the power that we have through the promises of God, and, and the list of qualities and, and attributes that should be true of anyone who, who is following Christ, the, the knowledge, the self-discipline, the self-control, the, the perseverance, the brotherly affection, the love, all of these things. He's like, I want you to recall them, not just remember them, but, but act upon them. See, the Bible is not just to inform us. It is it's to call us to action. We've grown accustomed to reading news reports of things that happen all around the world, so remote that, that there's no obligation for us to act when we hear about, in another country, a, a flood or starvation or, or some crisis. It's so far away. You know, I, I read one author who used the term moral proximity. You know, there's things that happen so far out the bounds of our moral proximity, we don't feel any moral obligation to intervene. We have knowledge that doesn't call us to action. But if, but if that same crisis happens in our neighbor's home, or, or within our church, or in our family, then we're, we're more compelled to act. That knowledge, we can't just sit idly by with that knowledge. Peter already said in verse 8 that there's a danger of having knowledge that is ineffective and unfruitful. Knowledge is supposed to bear fruit. It's supposed to be effective. It's supposed to, to have an action that goes with it in response. Knowledge that does not act is empty knowledge. It's pointless. It's lifeless. So in verse 13, Peter says, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And that's how the Word of God should affect us. It should stir us up, call us into action, uh, another one of, of the followers of Jesus in the first century, James, put it this way. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you, if you just hear the word of God, but you're not doing what it says, you are deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Keep that verse up there. Don't go ahead just yet. So it's, uh, James, when he's writing this, he actually intentionally uses the word for male. Like a male person, not a person in general, but a male, goes up to a mirror, looks at it, sees the mess that is his visage, his hair, his skin, whatever, and then look at the next verse. He looks at himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Okay? He's not paying attention. And if you come to God's word and you read it and you say amen and, and you love it and you feel warmed by it and then you go away and nothing changes, you're doing the same thing. You're, you're seeing yourself in the mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you just saw instead of responding to what it is that you just saw. Peter does not want to leave behind a, a memoir. He's leaving behind marching orders for the church because he knows how important this is. But, but why these words? Why, why are these words particularly calling us to action as opposed to many of the other things that we could read, the books that fill our shelves and our stores and fill up our screens. There's a lot of words out there. Why are these words sufficient to call us to action? Well, I would say that Peter next describes how Scripture calls us to action because it connects us to reality. Verse 16, he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. The Bible is not just chicken soup for the Christian soul. God did not save us through ideas and phrases and sayings because our problem is not 
ignorance. We are not otherwise good creatures who just need enlightenment. God saved us by acting in history. Our problem isn't misinformation. Our problem is our sin, our rebellion against God. And to do something about that, God didn't just have to say things. God had to do things in history. And so the hope of Christians, the entire basis of our way of living, is a significant historical reality. The hope of Christians is based on fact. It's based on things that really happened. Paul describes it in this way. He says, to the church. What I delivered to you as being the most important thing is what I also heard from, from others, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That's, that's an event that took place. That he was buried. That happened. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That, that's, that's an event, a historical event. And that, that he appeared to Cephas. That's, that's Peter. And then he appeared to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, even though some of them have died by now. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What Paul's doing there is he's saying, look, the, the things that matter, the things I'm basing all of this on, is something that happened in history. It's not just ideas that I had. It's not just speculation about what God might be like. It's not just aspirations of what I hope is true. It begins with a historical presence of God in history. And then Paul goes on to conclude after that, that if Christ has not been raised, if this was not based on history, on fact, then, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith, you, you even being here, is a waste of time. It's in vain. It's empty. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. This is why when we preach from this pulpit and when we teach the scripture here, we, we don't just dive right into the, to the words and say, well, what does this mean today? How do we feel about this? What's, how do we apply this today? We, we first do the hard work of placing it in history. Who's Peter writing to? What's he writing about? What's going on? What do we know is happening? These are not just things that occurred in legend. These are not things that can be taken out of and divorced from the historical context. The apostles said they were witnesses. They saw these things and they're telling us about them. And then Peter goes on to describe just one of the many memorable events that he personally witnessed in verses 16 through 18. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his, Jesus' majesty. When, When Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, And a voice was born to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We heard that. We heard it ourselves, the very voice from heaven, because we were with him on the mountain when that happened. He's describing the transfiguration when Jesus chose a few of his disciples to follow him up a mountain. And there God kind of took the veil away. Uh, And so you could see more clearly who Jesus really was and they beheld him in a glorious state and they heard the voice of God saying these words and they saw Moses and Elijah inexplicably there and it was so crazy that Peter kind of started babbling nonsense. And yet people were saying, no, this Jesus wasn't God. And Peter's like, are you kidding? I saw it. I heard it. Who are you believing? These guys who weren't there or someone who saw it? There's always been and will always be, as long as we're on this earth uh, under sin, there will be many reassessments of Jesus' life and words, many books, many seminars built around having a, a better understanding of Jesus, a more acceptable Jesus who, who 
fits into our culture better and our modern way of thinking a little bit better. That, that, you know, shaves down some of those sharp edges that make us uncomfortable and makes Jesus more acceptable to a current audience. This is, this is nothing new. This has, been, this has been going on as long as the church has existed. Peter is facing this. Peter is facing people who want to revise what we believe about Jesus. And he's saying, no, no, you can't do that. Who's in the best position to tell you what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did? Is anybody in a better position to tell us that than the ones who were there, the eyewitnesses, and who wrote their accounts down in Scripture? And I should say that, that if anybody has doubts as to the trustworthiness of the New Testament records of Jesus, please come find me, because I know there's a lot of suggestions out there that it's been edited over the years, and the, the documents we have come from hundreds of years later, and that's, that's baloney. Okay, we have amazingly trustworthy documents, and I can point you into the research for that if you're interested. But the point is, anyone who speaks against the words of the apostles faces an uphill battle because no one could have a better understanding of Jesus than the ones who connect us to the reality of what he said and did through their personal witness. And that's what sets Scripture apart. It's what sets it apart from Aesop's fables, Grimm's fairy tales, Eusebius's history, uh, the chicken soup for the soul. Okay, These are not vague stories with no historical bearing. These are not myths that are given just to inspire us and make us feel good. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look, we weren't making this up. We weren't just drawing from the myths of our day and trying to give you some inspiration. Because if it's based on myth, if it's coming from legend and not history, then it's meaningless to you. Jesus' power and his coming are for your salvation. His dying on the cross is the only way of forgiving sins. And if it did not happen, then there is no hope. I don't want to risk my salvation on a myth. No more than I would wait for Superman to actually show up if someone were invading my home. Superhero stories are great. They're entertaining, they're fun, they can even be a little inspiring, but they don't give us real help. And if I'm expecting a superhero to jump off the screen or off the pages of the comics and actually help me, I'm going to be disappointed. Just as I would if I expected the perfect lover to step off the screen and be a part of my life, or a perfect community of friends to step out of a story and become the people in my world. It's not reality. Scripture connects us to reality. Jesus' power, His coming are real, and therefore worthy alone of our obedience, of calling us to action. So watch where your heart is turning. When you are facing loneliness or fear or confusion or need, where do you look for salvation? Do you see comfort in the pages of a celebrity magazine or in the voices of a politician or in the fantasy world of a novel or a movie or in the staged reality of a computer screen? These aren't bad things in themselves, but if they become for us a source of hope, then we've taken a very wrong and unhealthy turn and we've disconnected ourselves from reality. Only the true historical Jesus Christ has power to save. Myths and stories can inspire you and encourage you, but they cannot transform you and they cannot save you and they cannot therefore call you into action. Scripture calls us to action because it connects us to reality.
The next thing Peter shows us, the third of four that I want to look at today, is that Scripture commands our trust. Verse 19, he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Here, Peter points out that the Bible is not just a bunch of predictions about things waiting to happen. There's some of that. But many of us and many people who are not familiar with Scripture believe that it's just talking about every, everything it's talking about is stuff that's the end times, that's yet to come. But many of the things that God promised in the Bible have already come true in Jesus. You know, after Jesus' resurrection and his disciples still didn't understand that what was going on, two of them were walking down the road and discussing their sadness that, that this leader they had hoped in had been executed. And they unknowingly met Jesus, who did not let them understand who he was. And as they shared their sadness with him and their confusion over the reports of the resurrection, Jesus says this in Luke 24. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, they called it Moses, and all the prophets, that's all the historical and prophetic writings, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What Jesus is doing is saying, look, I know you don't think this makes sense, but now look at it in this perspective. When Moses said this, he's talking about me. When you read this in Leviticus, that's me. Deuteronomy, that's me. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, the, the Kings, the Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah. When you look throughout Scripture, everything that's happening is fulfilling what God was telling you was yet to come. If you had a, a weather prediction app that was wrong 70% of the time, what would you do with it? You'd delete that thing, right? Okay. If, if you had a, a stockbroker who, who kind of got most of their predictions wrong, would, would you maybe reinvest your money somewhere else? Yeah? I, I would think so. I would hope so. But on the other hand, if you found an app or a source that accurately, 100% accurately predicted weather or traffic or stocks or sports outcomes, what would you do? Would you not pay attention? That's what Peter is saying. Peter's saying, look, God's word, all that he promised, is coming true in Jesus. The prophetic word is made more certain because we're seeing in Jesus that God's doing everything he said he would do. Now, there's still a few things yet that we haven't seen come true, but look at the track record. Spot on. Okay, now aren't you going to pay attention to that? If we've got an accuracy of 100%, you're going to pay attention, aren't you? That's why he says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, and so you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Essentially, Peter's telling you that because God has already shown that he can be trusted, the smartest thing we can do is pay attention to what he has to say. Everything he's already said has come true. Every word of the Lord is true. So pay attention to what he says. As Psalm 119 reminds us, it is a lamp in a dark place. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so Peter says, you do well to pay attention to that. We live in a world of darkness and uncertainty. We walk in darkness and we walk in confusion and sometimes a combination of the two, of our own choices and of a world in sin. And it's hard to navigate when you can't see. 
But Scripture is that trustworthy light that shines in the midst of the darkness, not bright enough to remove all the uncertainty. Scripture doesn't make everything clear to us. And we wrestle with this in our, our Monday Men's Bible study. It comes up like at least every other time. Why don't we understand everything? Why has not God made everything so clear, or at least a little more clear? Well, Scripture is a lamp that shines in the darkness not to completely enlighten everything, but to show us the path that we need to walk in the midst of the darkness. It gives us enough light to see the steps ahead of us, to see the path before us, until the day comes when we don't need a lamp to see. As he says in verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. You don't need a lamp once the sun comes up. Now God's word will never pass away. It will always be true forever and ever. But the day is coming when we will see the living word, Jesus face to face, when he will speak to us directly and there will be no confusion, no frustration, no misunderstanding, and no darkness at all. And until then, God's word commands our trust and leads us in the right path until we reach that day. And it does so. Scripture commands our trust because Scripture comes from God. That's the fourth and final thing I want to look at. The words of human women and men cannot command our trust the way that Scripture does. Because human thoughts and ideas are not worthy of that trust. Almost every religion recognizes this, that human wisdom can't bear that responsibility. We need divine knowledge. Verses 20 and 21, Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter wants to make sure we understand that what he's writing and what the authors of Scripture in the past have written it is not a spiritual journey or diary of just their perspective. It's not just what some people saw and observed and thought and interpreted things. It is instead God speaking through them. Somehow, in some mysterious way, God works through human authors to say exactly what he wants so that what we have when we read this passage today are truly the words of Peter. He was not in some catatonic zombie state where he didn't know what he was doing and he's just writing out notes. Not like that. It was truly the words and thoughts of Peter, but yet the Holy Spirit worked in such a way so that Peter wrote exactly the words that the church was supposed to hear. Look at how one, another author of Scripture describes it in 1 Corinthians 2. Among the mature, we, we do impart wisdom, but it's, it's not a wisdom of our age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a, a secret and hidden wisdom from God which God decreed before the ages to our glory. For who knows a person's thoughts? Listen to this. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. And so no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. I don't know what you're thinking. You might, you might be making a funny face right now. Some of you are. And I don't know if you're bored. I don't know if you're thinking about your lunch plans. I don't know if I've made you uncomfortable. I don't know if there's something in my teeth that you can see. I don't know if you really disagree with what I'm saying and you're like thinking of your argument for when you find me after. I don't know. I don't know the thoughts in your head but you do. And the only way I can know what you're thinking is if you reveal yourself to me with your words. And likewise, no human insight, effort, or anything can discern the thoughts of God 
It must be God who reveals himself. And scripture does not claim to be human thoughts about God, but rather God revealing his thoughts through humans. He's told us in Isaiah 55, the Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The ways of God are so beyond us, we can't possibly piece them together. But God, in his great love, reveals his thoughts to us. He gives us his word so that we can know him and experience his salvation. And that means we have to take his word very seriously. We cannot pick and choose which parts of the Bible we'll follow. We cannot consider just one weighty piece of data among many. The Bible as a whole is the standard by which all truth is measured because it comes from God. And because it comes from God, it alone commands our trust. I had the the privilege yesterday of resting in a room in my house and listening to my wife instructing my daughter how to make a meal for us. And I'm a recipe guy because if I don't follow the recipe to the letter, it's going to be horrible. But my wife is is a little more flexible. And she's like, how much salt? Maybe a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, When do I I flip this over? Just wait a little. You know, wait. Or let's, let's, well, it says to use this, but let's use this instead. Let's, let's use a pinch of that, a dash of that. You can be creative with recipes. It's probably a good thing. But when I'm standing in the pharmacy and the doctor behind the counter is preparing medicine for my son, I don't want him to do a pinch of this and a dash of that and maybe substitute this for that because it's life or death. I take it very seriously. Okay, that's the approach we need to take with Scripture. Either Christ is God as man, or he is not. And that's life or death. Either Christ died for your sins, or you are still in your sins. Either Christ rose from the dead, or there is no resurrection. It is life or death. We cannot play around with these words. We need to take them seriously. And the message, the heart of all it says is that salvation has come to you through Jesus Christ. And you do well. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns in your heart and the morning star rises and we see and hear and know face to face. That day is coming, brothers and sisters. Hang on, endure until that day. But until it is here, you do well to pay attention to how God has revealed himself in a trustworthy way that connects you to reality and calls you to action. Let us pray with thankful and humble hearts for his word today. Our gracious Father, we do rejoice in how you have given us your word, how you have revealed yourself to us. We could not have done this on our own and we would not entrust our lives and indeed our eternities, our very souls, to the wisdom of women and men. We instead entrust them to the word that you have revealed most perfectly through Jesus Christ and through the words of Scripture that you have given that we may know you and your salvation. We thank you for this in our Savior's name. Amen. If the kids are nearby, they can come on in. I'm going to wait for them. They're on their way. All right. Welcome back, kids.
I like, I like to see a measured amount of joy. They're happy to come back to their family, but they really enjoyed what they were doing upstairs as well. And they're, you know, they're happy in either place. It's great. Okay, let's prepare our hearts and our minds for the Lord's Supper. Because as we take the Lord's Supper, it is, it is bread and it is a cup of, of drink, yes, but it is also more than that. Christ is very real and present in this in a unique way. And the presenting of the Lord's Supper is never to be separated from the presenting of the word of the gospel. We saw already that we have the prophetic word made certain, made more certain. That's what we have in Christ. The prophetic word of what God had said He would do, of what His plans were, revealed in Christ. And in His life, His death, and His rising, the prophetic word of God, the promises of God are made more certain. And we rejoice in that as we receive the Lord's Supper. It is a lamp shining in a dark place that we who are bound in the darkness of sin and nature's night, Christ appears, takes on human flesh, takes our place in being punished for sin. That's what we celebrate here. That's what we remember here. That's why there's a body and blood. It was not a spirit that was crucified for you. It was not a ghost. It was a, a human body that died in your place. Actual blood that was spilled on your behalf. This is real. This is history. This is what the first followers of Jesus witnessed. It's what they declare to you. And it's what calls us to action in obedience. And so if that is not you this morning, if you hear what I'm saying and, and you, you look at Jesus as a nice holy figure, but, but something less than very God and very Savior through his death and resurrection, then, then this comes with a warning. And, and I would politely ask you to not take it, to, to let the bread and let the cup go past you because to eat is to confess a belief in Jesus that we've been talking about here. And if you don't truly believe in that way, then don't confess it with your actions. Be honest with who you are and what you believe. But take this time to consider. And if, you look to, if you're looking to anything else as a lamp shining in a dark place for you, if, if you're looking to any other belief system or to your own uh, moral fortitude, your own wisdom, or anything else, I warn you that that lamp will be extinguished and will not pierce the darkness and will not lead you where you want it to go. Turn to Christ instead and know Him. I also warn those who, as we heard in Sunday school, taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not talking about swearing. It's talking about calling yourself Christian, calling yourself by the name of God, and not living with all the meaning that that has. If you look at your sin lightly, if you, if you do not obey Christ as He's called you to, then this does not promise salvation to you. This promises judgment because He will judge your sin and condemn you. The Lord will hold no one guiltless who takes His name in vain. Lastly, the warning is for those who, though this represents the unity of the body of Christ, only sin breaks that unity. It was through sin that the body of Christ was broken for us. And when we sin against one another, it breaks the unity of the body. So if you have sinned against another in any way and you have not repented of that in word and in deed, and when I pray in a moment, make that a time to confess that, to repent of that, and to begin the process of doing what is right. But likewise, if another has sinned against you and you are withholding from them the full free grace of God that was shown to you, 
Repent of that and commit yourself to show the grace that you have received. But to all who trust in Christ, whether that trust is, whether your tank is full or nearly empty, whether you are fully certain or confused and wondering, whether you approach this table fully aware of how much you have failed or whether it's been a good week where God has been gracious, whatever your situation, you need not be a member of this church. We just ask that you have uh, aligned yourself with a body of Christ where his gospel is preached and his name is honored. This is the table of the Lord. Come and be refreshed. Be reminded of what he has done in reality. Be recommitted to obedience and cling to that light until the day dawns. Ask the elders, uh, the servers to come forward to assist us. Let us turn our hearts to him in prayer. And as we do so, if there's anything that needs to be confessed, make this a time to do so in your heart and prepare yourself to receive the sign and the seal of your salvation. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you have revealed to us in your word, by your spirit, and even through the sacrament, how you have revealed Christ to us, and in Christ is salvation fully. Make us not only aware of these things, but help us to remember them in being stirred to action by them. You are good, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. Make that real in our hearts by faith, we pray. Amen.